Hey, everybody. Welcome to Stuff Said with Greg Shegel. I am Greg Shegel. I am a cartoonist, and on this show, I talk to people in the world of comics, cartooning, and beyond. On today's show, I'm talking to Dan Slott. Dan Slott is probably best known as the writer of The Amazing Spider-Man, and he's been doing that for a bunch of years, and he's good at it. But more important than that, I think, is he loves it. Here's the thing about Dan. Dan is an enthusiastic positive energy uh he's a sweetheart and i was very pleased to have him come and talk and we talked a lot this is a long conversation the version you're getting has been edited down to just under two hours there is an extended version if you want to hear about 30 more minutes including all the various digressions and 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 things of that nature if you go to the website stuffsaidshow.com there's an extended cut there that you can listen to at your leisure. But this is this is the, the important stuff. The the two hours of important stuff. I've known Dan for a good while. Uh, he he and Tom Brevoort are friends and I used to work for Tom Brevoort, so I, I had contact with Dan many years ago and I think I think Dan's story is a compelling one because it's one of those uh, overnight successes that takes 10, 15 years or however you want to do the math. And I I wanted to talk to Dan for a while and I got a chance to. And here's uh, my talk with Dan Slott. And you weren't speaking yet. No. But you were born in Berkeley, California. Born in Berkeley, California. And you have you have sibling sisters? Yes. Uh, identical twin sisters. So are you the oldest? Uh, youngest. The youngest? Yes. Baby boy? Yes. And then when did you go from Berkeley to the East Coast? Five years in Berkeley. I don't remember much about Berkeley except the elderly lady who lived next door who was like a tertiary grandmother. Okay. And when I could walk, and it was a completely different time. You know, when I, I could barely, while I was still in diapers, so that means five. I'm kidding. No, I was. I I remember I was allowed to leave the the back door. There is a path without crossing the street to her house, and she always left her screen door open. And there was a drawer she left where I could reach, which was always filled with marshmallows. Nice. And I would take one, stuff it in my mouth, and then one in each hand, and waddle back home. And that was Carrie Jones and the marshmallow drawer. So that's that's like I still that's like my probably my earliest childhood memory. Are you going to title all your stories by the end of the at the end of the story? Yes, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so at five, you moved to the uh, East Coast. Moved to New Jersey for two quick years. Okay, and that was because that's like the first time I ever saw snow. And I remember the the time we first saw snow. Uh, I first saw snow. My sisters had seen snow. My parents, of course, but uh, I, I raced out. We had a two-story house, and on the back, there was a patio, and I climbed up on the railing, and no one saw me, and I was not allowed to do that, and I fell off and landed in a thick snowbank. Lucky you. Lucky me, and I knew I was going to get in trouble, and my parents, when they, by the time they came outside, I had seen it in cartoons. 
So I quickly made a snow angel and they thought I'd run out my pajamas and had done this. And they were like, get inside. You're going to freeze. And no one noticed there was no footprints going to the (laughs) snow angel. (laughs) And I never did that again. And that's when we got a dog. So I remember the dog and the dog came with us and then we moved back to California. Oh, all right. And I was in California for most of grade school. And that was a great house. That was like, it was a very much, it looked like the Brady Bunch house. It was in the 70s. And it was on a, a man made lake. And my best friend lived across the man made lake from us. And uh, I had a little sailboat. And I could sail to my friend's house and moor the boat and then play at his house and then That's sail awesome. back. Yeah, it was a very idyllic. I only uh, had childhood. a bicycle. There you go. <laughs> but then we moved for all of junior high and high school. My dad got moved over to London. Oh, really? Yeah, and that was my first time ever in a big city. And suddenly I went from being like a kid always in small towns to it happened really fast. Like I'd started seventh grade. Was it eighth grade? Uh, I start, It was like starting a grade, and then it just all came together really quick, and suddenly we were packed, and we were moved, and we were in London. And suddenly I was taking a, the subway to my new school. Now, on a, on a comic book level, does that mean you're reading 2000 AD? You're mm-hmm. reading British reprints of Marvel books? You're, yeah. you're completely out of the, the Marvel world, the superhero American comics world? No, because in London, I uh, had the Forbidden Planet. So I was able to get best of both worlds. I was able to read all my Marvels and DCs and read 2000 AD and... All, all the, the British stuff. stuff, yeah, which was great. It really opened my uh, eyes to the, a whole new world of comics. Sure. Because up until then, I had started reading at like the age of eight for uh, comic books and buying comic books at age eight. So I was reading in California. I was reading Amazing Spider-Man, Marvel Tales, Marvel Team-Up, Detective Comics, which I liked more than Batman for some reason. Brave and Bold and Marvel 2-in-1 were my books. I got a quarter a week for allowance and I could save some change from lunch money, and it all went to comics. And I, my two older sisters, they had more money than me. They had more allowance. They're much older than me. And back then, there was no DVR. There was no VCR. And you watched what you watched. And it was a constant battle with who got the control of the TV. There was no remote control. Right. It was a, turn, a dial. Yep. It, with the UHF bunny on top, too. And Absolutely. It was a constant war for, for who could watch what on TV. And to get me out of the house so they could win. My sisters would go, oh, could you go to the 7-Eleven and get me a Juicy Fruit? And they'd give me like a quarter. They wouldn't give a rat's ass about the gum. And they go, and here's a quarter. Because they knew that I could go to the store and then buy a comic and then come back. And then I'd come back and go, here's your Juicy Fruit. And it would take me a half hour. To and read that, that comic. No, no, not, uh, not to, to go to the, the co- store. To go to the store, buy the Juicy Fruit or the Wrigley Spearmint or whatever, and then come back. They with, were going stick gum? They weren't going for a Hubba Bubba or a Bubblicious? No, because what they did was they they did this arts and crafty thing where they would... With the foil. With the foil, and also they would fold the, the Wrigley Spearmint gum into this weird origami shape that connected with another and make bracelets and okay. necklaces. And they would just sit there and watch TV and, and make these long necklaces. Girls are weird, They're very weird. <laughs> but I would, I would come all the way back. It would take like half hour. And then I'd go here. And then they go, oh, and can you get us some sweet tarts? 
and they'd send me back wow. out. So there were some days where I could score like two comics on top of that. And it was usually somebody I'd read in Marvel Team Up or Brave and Bold or Two-in-One who teamed up with Spider-Man, Batman, right. thing. But for the most part, I was only guaranteed those team-up books and Spider-Man and or Marvel Tales and uh, Detective Comics were my fallbacks. Now you're, you're in London. Mm-hmm. Did you go to college across the pond or in the States? Uh, or no, did you go to college? I went to college in California. Okay. I went back to California for college. Uh, so but, you're, you're a total West Coast dude uh, in so many ways. Five, you're, you're 10, four, okay, 14 years of my life. In, okay. in California. It's like not um, even half your life. Not even half my life. But <laughs> London was London was like the big thing for me because it was that was freedom. When and that's I, a major period of junior high school and high school. Junior high school and high school. Yeah. And the school I went to was insane. It was it was wonderful. I tell people about things I got to do in high school and they want to kill me. It just so much envy. It was an international school, so it was rich kids from the oil industry and some embassy kids and other kids from different industries. Their parents were in different industries, and my dad's company paid for it. So it was, it was just it was a great experience. We had these things called electives where for one week with a school chaperone, you just went somewhere in Europe, and you studied something for a week. So where'd you go? My senior year was the most decadent, even though I didn't leave England. It was a week at Stratford-upon-Avon with all the Royal Shakespeare Company plays that were in pre-production before they went to in London for the National Theatre and other theatres. And the Royal Shakespeare Company at the time was young Kenneth Branagh, Roger Rees, uh, Emma Thompson, Brian Blessed, it was disgusting. <laughs> it was like I got to see every day, see like a play or a matinee, and you're with all your friends. And during the afternoon, if there wasn't a matinee, it was members of the Royal Shakespeare Company leading you through workshops. Now, this is a complete aside. I was going to save this later. But were you ever in any sort of drama or theater yeah. stuff? Yeah. Okay. All the, yeah. So, like, the whole reason why I wanted to do that with all my friends is we were all doing a production of As You Like It at the time and we were just drenched in Shakespeare and loving Shakespeare and I was touchstone but I yeah I, I was a, a big theater kid in high school I think you still carry that now I mean I've, I've in preparation for this I watched interviews with and you, you definitely you play to the camera you have you have a, a, a wide grin you are you are aware of your audience you yes. play to your audience yes I do. and you do this thing I don't know if you're aware of it and I apologize if this is like you're gonna become a, a double thumbs up I, I do that every now and then. Is is uh, is that is that an official move? Is that an official Dan Slottism? No, that's the everybody does that. That's what who has two thumbs and know. blah no, blah. No, no, but you go thumbs up forward. You're not like pointing at yourself. You do a. Uh, I yeah, and I do I do a couple other shows. <laughs> there, 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 there's a repertoire. Now is that is that clearly that that comes from this this performer inside of you? Well, yeah, yeah. I I did I did theater. God, I, you know, even when I was like in grade school, my sisters for a long time were were concert harpists. And uh, my parents sent them to Interlock and Music Camp, uh, which also did theater and drama. And it was just easier to send me with them. Sure. So all three went, all three kids go to the same place. So I would be in their theater department even as a young kid. And then when in high school doing all the plays, same thing in junior high. And I was a theater major in college. And I, I gave it up around my senior year of college. I just had not not enough, but... I would do this thing where friends, because it was in L.A., 
and friends in the theater department would go out for auditions and things like screw the school play I want to get in a movie or sure. something and every now and then I would just join them just to keep them company and go over lines and crap and more often than not I would get pulled aside even though I wouldn't be the type they go oh we got another part we got this other thing and everyone you know it, was, it would be this kind of annoying thing like oh you know I, you came to keep me company now you're reading for this shit and i wouldn't have headshots or anything but can we take your number and right. because basically i was a type you know if you wanted a you know ernie patella danny devito paul Sor you know short yeah. paul servino kind of you know type now were you were you a comedic type were you doing dramatic work where, i always i was i was like doing character work okay uh, doing things big and broad and silly and i loved being the sidekick character and and having some you know fun with it getting the laughs yeah i was usually comic relief and stuff yeah. but i loved it and there was i used to do rep theater during the summers in a, in a greek ball with a company when school wasn't on and it was fun so i was doing it all the time and then i had this like double whammy where i was in a production of man and superman playing at the greek ball and our lead who i was his wacky sidekick his cockney sidekick because i could do the voice so here, here we are you know i'm I'm being a cockney, and I'm doing this fun role and getting laughs and mm -hmm. having a great time. And I get this great write-up in the L.A. Times where it's like, oh, Dan Slott in another life must have been Danny DeVito. And all they can talk about is Danny fucking DeVito. <laughs> and I'm like, that had jack shit to do with anything I was doing. I'm, you saw that everyone was having a great time and laughing. And, yeah. and then here I was getting like constantly called in for Danny DeVito roles and Paul mm -hmm. Servino roles and you know, Ernie Patella, all these very similar types. And there was my senior year, there was this, this one role I really, really wanted. And I auditioned for this play, and it was so frustrating because they cast the entire play after a series of callbacks except the one role I wanted. And it all came down to the person that I would have to play opposite romantically. The woman they cast was 5'10", and I'm 5'3". And there were lines in the play about the differences in height where he was taller. Uh. And the other guy they were going with, he was like 5'11". So even though the lines didn't work for either of us, for me, there was a marked difference right. and you would have to play it. Yeah. But it was really frustrating because I really loved the part. And it was a part where I, when I'd seen it in other plays, I always went like, oh, if I was playing that, I know exactly the bit I would do. And when I did the audition, I did that bit and everyone was floored. People like everyone in the audition was cracking up. And the director's like, I've never seen anyone do that before. And eventually they used that bit in that production with the other guy yeah <laughs> they took my bit that i had since like you know high school and they gave it to the other guy but the thing was the um director called me in and he told me like you know you are always going to have work in this repertory company you're good you you know your stuff and you've got a long career ahead of you but here's the thing you have to play to type this is your type and you have to own it and this time it fought against you that I wasn't going to cast someone with your type in that role. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to use you, and I couldn't. But you are always going to have a career. And then I was thinking about it, and I was like, even when I'm not, even when I was like this cockney guy that had no resemblance to Danny DeVito, that was it. People congratulated me for the type. And I didn't want to go through life being that type. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to, like, at the end of my career go, well, great, I was that character actor who played those roles for his life and that was it that didn't feel like 
you know. But meanwhile, I was writing plays and writing stories and, and doing art. And there was a fun in when I got to write a story, I got to be every part. And that never got old. When I could, I, I went straight from college to Marvel Comics. That was right. the goal. I yeah, just the, went. The, le the legendary story, or maybe it's not legendary, <laughs> is that you, you were an intern after you had graduated. Yes. And, and I'll condense it. You, you essentially lied and said, yeah, yeah, I'm getting credit. You got an old professor to vouch for you mm -hmm. and claim you were getting credit because you, would not, you couldn't get an internship without college credit. Nope. I tried. And yeah, I was, I was there and I was suddenly the intern who wouldn't leave. Because I didn't have anywhere else to go. And I was living off money I made while I was working at a Kinko's. So you were an intern in 1990, correct? Around then, like either 89 or 90. So that would have been the year after Brevoort was an intern. Mm -hmm. And then who else was an intern with you during your... Any notables? No. Though a friend of mine, Dare, we became friends during the internship. And then he went to work at the Daily Post. That was kind of fun because I remember after I was the intern, they offered me a temp job as an assistant editor while someone was off on hiatus for like three months. Mm -hmm. So I was an assistant editor for three months. To who? Uh, Ralph Macchio. Okay. And that, that, was, that was weird because that was during Captain America's 50th anniversary, during the Art Adams three issues of Fantastic Four. Okay, sure. Uh, when Anne Nascenti left Daredevil, was booted off. There, there was a lot of stuff going on in that office. It was, it was pretty crazy. And then when the assistant editor came back, they offered me a position as the art returnist. And that's where I stayed for some time. And there were, there were fun parts about that job. And one of them was you met everyone. Yeah. You met every single artist. And if anyone came in for a visit, you met them. And there were rare oddities and things that happened in that office. Like I found some Ditko art and I didn't have an address for Ditko, but I had a phone number. So I called him and went, could I get your snail mail so I can send you these art release forms? And he went, I'll, I'll come into the office. Ooh. Yeah. So I got to meet Steve Ditko. Really? Yeah. That's you're like one of the rare few. Yeah. Who knows what he looks like? Yes, and I'm sworn to secrecy. I will. I'm not. Look, <laughs> it's an audio podcast. It wouldn't matter. <laughs> he looked just like this. Yeah. Oh, I just saw it, guys. <laughs> so he's so I fancy. It, I had it tattooed on my chest. So then when did your your term as art returns guy end? And um, when did you start pursuing? Well, that that ha I was even as a college intern, I sold a couple of stories. Oh, 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 but just really quick, because yeah. I met everybody, and then one time at one convention, I met up again with Dare, who was an intern with right. me, and we're just sitting there in the food court, just, you know, chewing the fat and he telling stories, and and all these famous people kept walking by, and they'd see me, oh, hey, Dan, I'd be, oh, hi, Walt Simonson, <laughs> oh, hey, Dan, oh, hey, Mike Mignola, hey, Dan, right, hey, right. Jim Lee, <laughs> you know, he'd be like, how do you know these people? It's like, I know everybody. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> So you're selling stories. You're doing your thing. Yes. Now, here's where I come to know and, and come to be aware of Dan Slott. Uh -oh. I'm going to do a quick fast forward a little bit. Okay. I was Tom Brevoort's assistant. And every now and again, he would not be in the office. The phone would ring. I would answer the phone, and it would be you calling to talk to Tom. And then I know that when you would talk to Tom, you were usually working out a story. You were writing. Oh, I, yeah. I'd usually. Tom is like the best soundboard yeah, in the Yeah, I mean, you have, you have called out. I'm going to read a list of names. Okay. Of guys that you have said were your, your sort of your brain trust of guys you went to. My think tank. Yes. Tom Brevoort. Yep. Ty Templeton. All the time. James Fry. Yep. Manny Galan. Yep. Michael Seglane. 
Fabian Nicieza. Yes. I also, back when I was doing Looney Tunes stuff, I would bug Harvey Richards at DC. Okay. But my number one think tank person who isn't in there is my best friend from high school, Toby. I call Toby all the time. And now I, I also bug Marcos Martin because Marcos Martin can see the story. And also, and this is going to sound silly, it's really helpful, especially with all-nighters and the world of Skype, to have people throughout the world. So <laughs> different to- time zones. Different sure. time zones. Toby's in London, which is useful. It is so damn useful because it'll be, you know, six in the morning or five in the morning and I can't bug anybody. Right. I can bug Toby. He's just getting up. And then same thing with Marcos in Spain. Yeah. It's, it's really useful to have... Especially like as you're running down to the wire and you want to get something in at 9 in the morning or 9.30 in the morning to have my guys around the world because I'll get stuck in the middle of the night. I am the reason Marcos Martin left Spider-Man. Come on. I am the man who killed the goose that laid the golden eggs. Marcos has so many tools in his toolbox as an artist. And one of the things that he does just fantastic is he will lay out a page like a splash with this very incredibly designed environment and then he will move the characters and the story through the environment through inset panels it's beautiful it's 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 an amazing trick up his sleeve and And it's a thing you can only do in comics yeah there's nowhere else you can pull that trick off it looks what it looks like to a layman is it looks like someone drawing storyboards for a tracking shot Right. Yeah. Yes. But it looks so gorgeous on the comic book page. And he he did that in a couple stories we worked on. And I went, wow, this is a tool he has in his toolbox. Let's <laughs> abuse the hell out of it. And I said to him, like, I have this great idea for a story where we have this character, uh, Screwball, who leaps and bounds and does all this parkour yes. over cities. And Spider-Man, who leaps and bounds and does all this stuff. And I came up with this story that would be our version of the Hitchcock movie Rope, where the whole no story's in one take. Yeah. This would be going up the side of the building, down the side of the building, in 3D, going down, going along. So if you laid this out, it would be this crazy pattern, but it would all link. Yeah, And it would just be this amazing, and even though sometimes the chase would become a race, the race would become a chase, you would learn new plot points along the way that change who you're rooting for. And, oh, my God, no, I really want Screwball to get away because she's doing something good. Yeah. Or, oh, no, Spider-Man needs to catch her. So there is an involved story, but the whole story is going all along this race and chase and capture. And I'm I'm walking Marcos through it, and he's like, that would be very hard to draw. I could do that. He's like, I just want to tell a story. Can I? Can we just tell some stories? I go, no, 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 no. We could do this. We could do this. You know, it would be great. It would be this amazing thing. Because you know, I'm like, can you do everything you're doing, but do it while you're on a handstand on a unicycle and juggling? Yeah, that's a lot. Of, it's it's yeah yeah. So like, yeah, let's. Yeah. He's like, I just want to tell stories. And I, I kept pushing and pushing. And then one day it's like, oh, we're losing Marcos. I'm like, oh, man, that's me, isn't it? Well, I would say since he still talks to you. Oh, no, we, we have a great yeah. time. And, and, and we talk all the time. It's, it's a failing of mine that if you show me you can do something in your art, I will, I will just milk it. That is I a will, dead horse you will beat. Yeah. The worst thing you can do if you're an artist working with me is draw an exceptional crowd shot. 
you know, like Umberto Ramos screwed himself when he did that for me. You look at Spider Island, and it is just crowd shot city. I just would not. Min Q, when we were doing Justice League Adventures, did that. And I just, I go crazy if you show me you can draw a million figures in a panel. Uh, it, is, it is a professional dream. I want to work with George Perez. I will make him so happy. <laughs> I will just, then the crowd of 12,000 characters. I did a Justice League story with Dan Jurgens, And anyone who wasn't in the industry who came by the apartment and looked at the art went, oh, that's so beautiful. And anyone who was in the industry who looked at it went, you're an asshole. <laughs> millions of crowd shots there's no backgrounds it's all crowds i'll say this i'd rather draw crowds of people than than buildings and cars uh, some people just they can do that those buildings and cars like nobody's business you know i wish i could when, when i when i had the distinct pleasure and honor of working with john Romita jr on, he's amazing yeah on new ways to die and the spidey 600 there was a moment in New Ways to Die where Peter Parker comes home and he opens up his door and you got to a double page splash of all the Thunderbolts are in his apartment waiting for him and Norman Osborn sitting on a chair and he goes, Parker. And you're like, oh no, they know he's Spider-Man, you're fucked. And then when you read the next issue, it's Parker. Where can I find Spider-Man? You're like, wah, wah, wah. And that's the first time we let you know that post, you know, Brand one more day, 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 you know, day whatever, yeah. that Norman didn't know. All the Thunderbolts are in the office, are in the apartment. Yeah. They're all looking menacing. And, oh, all the Thunderbolts are there. And the Thunderbolt office saw it and went, you can't have Bullseye in this shot. Because superheroes can know. That Bullseye is a member of the Thunderbolts. But the people at large don't know. And I'm like, but... And they're like, oh, because Peter Parker's a civilian. They don't know he's spied. You're right. He, Bullseye can't be there. So Steve Wacker calls up John Romita Jr. And he says, yeah, John, we can't have Bullseye in the shot. Can you take Bullseye out? And they talk for all of like, while they're talking, he just mentions it. And while they're talking, they're, they're just shooting the breeze. Suddenly this fax comes through and it's the page. And while he was on the phone talking with him, he took out Bullseye, finished the rest of the window and the radiator and stuff on the wall, and it looked like it had always been drawn that way, and he fixed it, and there it is. Yeah, he's like a wizard. What, how did you... What the... Huh? Working on Amazing Spider-Man, uh, honestly, when it comes to scheduling and time, I am the weak link on this book. Um, I am very slow and methodical, and yeah, I, I overthink everything. Uh, it is my privilege and honor. Again, uh, working with Umberto Rama and uh, Giuseppe Camicoli. These two guys are the most professional people I've ever worked with in all of comics. So you would talk to Tom about these stories. You'd be on the phone with him. Uh, you guys would do lunch all the time. There are people you like working with. You know, you look at my history at Marvel since when I came back, quote unquote, in mm -hmm. 2004, and I, I was just working for Brevoort. Right. And then... I, you know, working for Steve Wacker, but I'd worked for Steve at DC. He was editing the Justice League. Justice so. League and, and helped out with some Arkham Asylum. But you look at that, and the only people I was really working with at Marvel are Brevoort and Wacker. And I did some short stories for Mark Paniccia, and I'm now doing, like, a short story for Nick Lowe. 
Uh, but for the most part, like there are people you enjoy working with. Sure. There are people like, and with editors, there are people you have in your Rolodex that, you know, you just feel comfortable with. Yeah, you jive with them. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you have this kind of synchronicity. There are people you jive with. And right. I, I jive really well with, with Brevoort. We can reach points where we start talking shorthand. Sure. And one of the things I really like about Tom that speaks very well about him is he will always give you the straight dope. He does not like politics. He is just so honest and earnest about all of this, and that's why so many pros like working with him. He will just tell you the way it is. Yeah. You did a lot of work in licensed properties. Yep. Looney Tunes, Justice League Unlimited, Batman the Animated Series, all of these things that, to the mainstream comic book world, is secondary. Yep. To the world outside the mainstream comic world is the coolest thing in the you could possibly be doing. It, totally, and I, and and, and I know that doing SpongeBob comics. I mean, I do SpongeBob comics, and within comics, it's like, oh, okay. But any normal person, normal in quotes, yeah, people outside the industry are blown away that I draw SpongeBob SquarePants. Totally, it, it's a completely. It, it's the insular world of comics where it has to be about superheroes. Right. And but again, you were you were writing superhero stories, and I've read a few of those Justice League stories, and they were solid superhero. That twenty-two page story. That's what broke me out of of kid books when I started work at Marvel, I had uh, the problem of success where just like looking like Danny DeVito, you, you do something well and people think that's all you can do. And I got from my first regular book, Ren and Stimpy. And people right. went, this is the funny animal guy. And I, I did the book well and it sold incredibly well. And it got me a lot of work. The people came, DC came after me and said, will you please do Looney Tunes? Right. And other companies came after me and went, can you do this? Can you do Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Can you do this property? Can you do that property? And it was all because, wow, he can do kid properties. And I would go and I would make sure that for every one of those I was doing, I would do an equal amount of work of superhero stuff. But people weren't reading it. And it was frustrating. Like, I would have... I remember an editor walked into the Randy Simpy office while I was turning in some scripts. And this is pre-internet. So you would go into the office yeah. and hand shit in. And he went, I, I just read, like, this superhero story you did. It was great. You should do more of that. And here's a guy who was editing Fantastic Force and a whole bunch of other titles, superhero titles. And I went, oh, can I pitch you stuff? And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm full up now. Yeah. So it's like I would have people come up to me and tell me, oh, that was I love that. You should do more of that. Will you hire me? Oh, I can't. For the longest time, I was doing everything. I was doing... You know, on top of Ren and Stimpy, I was doing Disney's Aladdin, Scooby-Doo, Looney Tunes, Animaniacs, Pinky in the Brain, Tick. Uh, I, I was doing like... Was that it, the acclaimed Tick? Yeah. I was doing... I did samples for that. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, I was working on every freaking licensed property under the sun. If there's a licensed property, I worked on it. Sonic right. the Hedgehog. You, and it pays and you're writing. You're getting paid to yeah. write comics. Totally. But um, you're ghettoized. T totally ghettoed. I was in Funny Animal Ghetto. And that's what I called it. But there came a time when I was doing all these tons of work at DC. And there, I was doing lots of their Scooby-Doo, tons of their Looney Tunes. And there's this thing that happens to people who work in licensed comics where they get beaten down. 
especially because you're not just dealing with an editor you're dealing with an editor and the licensor so you've got like you have to serve two masters and i had just done the really obvious thing which is if you're working on a license you completely immerse yourself in that license you learn all the characters voices you learn the rhythm and the feel of that license and the gag is you do stories that haven't been done before with those characters that could be on that show that's it Right. It's very simple, you when know. You put it that way. When you put it that way, and so many of these guys have gotten beaten down that they don't care what the license is. They just keep pitching stories, and the licensor gets it and goes, "I'm not approving this springboard," or "I'm going to approve this springboard after we work the crap out of it and we do lots of back and forth and revisions." So what would happen is I'd be the one guy on whatever book I was working on where all my springboards would get approved. Everything would get approved without any hassle whatsoever. Right. And there would be mountains of springboards in drawers where the editor just knew they could hire me to just finish that up and make it a story. And I would get to the point where I'm like, oh, I'm bored. I don't want to do this or I want to take a break. I, I just, you know, if I'm, if I'm not feeling it, I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, the last thing I'd want to do is hack. Because the minute you hack, you're done. Your career's over. You must never, ever hack. And uh, I'd just be like, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to. And they, oh, please. Yeah, I'd have editors calling me going, oh, please, please write up these things that are all these springboards that are approved. Because right. I can't get any of my other shit approved. Um, and I've got a drawer of this. And I remember it got so bad at one point where I was working on Scooby-Doo. And I had this great video game set up in my, my apartment. <laughs> I, I I had so many video game systems, but at one point I was way more interested in earning all the red coins in Super Mario 64 than I was in writing this fucking Killer game. Yeah, yeah. this freaking Scooby-Doo story after I'd done a bunch of them. And uh, if you're not feeling it, don't do it. If you're not feeling it, quit. There's someone else who wants the job and they'll bring passion. You know, that's so important. And I just wasn't feeling it. And I'm I'm playing this video game. And the editor calls me up, and they're like, you know, we really need that script. Can you? And I had turned off the volume when I picked up the phone, and they could hear the click of the N64 controller. They could right. hear the click, 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 click. And the editor goes, oh, you're typing. I'll let you go. And I'm like, okay. And I hang up the phone, and I should be writing Scooby-Doo, but instead, in the whole time in my head, I'm like, do, 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 you know, it was when I was working on uh, Arkham Asylum for DC, um, Dan Raspler, the editor, had been over to my apartment and he'd seen my setup. And he went, before you start work on Arkham Asylum, you are bringing your PS2 into DC. And my PS2 went into a closet at DC and got locked up. So that's a true story. That's a true story. My, my PS2 stayed at DC Comics for uh, six months in a closet. And during that time, I got so much damn work done that that kind of ended my hardcore video game days. Hmm. It, it stopped because I just went, oh, my God, this is the biggest time suck. So I, I, was, I was in this funk doing I, – I was reaching the point where I was really seriously thinking of quitting the industry. When you get to the point where you're, you're playing Super Mario and yeah. you have a chance to write a Scooby-Doo story and you don't, that's a good sign. You should hang it up. And somehow I got through that, and I was still doing all these Looney Tunes stories, but I had all these drawers full of stories that had been approved, and they kept wanting me to do more. And I just told then editor Joan Hilty, you have the Batman Adventure book. You have the Justice Let me do those. Let, let, let me do some Batman stories for you. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I need you to do the Looney Tunes. You have all the sons of Looney. Let me do a Batman because I just knew that the Batman stories, all the the Paul Dini, Bruce Tim universe, that it was superheroes straight to the core. Yeah, that wasn't a you know that's where you get to do Batman and you don't have to deal with Contagion or No Man's Land any of that bullshit. Very pure. Yeah, and this was like. Oh my God, everything's stripped down to like the pure poetry of what Batman is. Is like, let me play in that playground. And in their mind, oh, it's a kid book. You know, it wasn't letting me that far out of the ghetto. So they let me do it. And my big victory on that was I had, this this is the story of my my 35th birthday. Okay. I hit my, this was like, because I was in this malaise and I was thinking of quitting. And I I hit my 35th birthday, and my dad calls me up. My dad is just the nicest person on earth, and he's very supportive about everything, and he, he, he never insults people. He's so rare with insults, and he's never vulgar. I, I admire the hell out of my dad. He's my hero. But he calls me up on my birthday to wish me a happy birthday and see how things are doing, and, and he can just tell I'm in a funk. He's like, what's the matter? He's like, oh, you know, it's my birthday. You know, I'm I'm this old, and I, I look at the shelf. I've got like, I want. I thought I was going to be this great writer, and I was going to have all these books on the shelf by now, and I'd, I'd be able to do this. I I spent so much of my life trying to break into the comic industry. He's like, you're in the comic, and no, I'm doing the funny animal stuff, and I'm not where I want to be. And I I'd done some work in advertising and doing ads for TV for action figures and toys and that door was always open to me and i was thinking of just chucking comics and going back into advertising and as as i was talking to my dad i went you know because i thought i just thought i'd be somewhere else when i was 35 and he went are are you stupid i'm like what he's like you're you're being an idiot i'm like what do you mean he's like do me a favor pull out your wallet yeah pull out your driver's license do the math I'm 34. <laughs> He's like, yeah, you're 34, you idiot. And I'm like, I'm not 35, I'm 34. He's like, yeah, I'm running around like, yes. And then it got me thinking. It was like, it was like the ghost of Christmas future. I do not want to end up here when I'm 30 freaking five. Wow. I can't end up here because I had a taste of it yeah. and it was horrible. And then I was like, I'm breaking through this year. I refuse to do more of this shit. And at that time, Justice League Adventures was announced, and they'd even shown teasers and trailers of it. And also at that time, DC was stupid. Whenever I'm serious, they would always wait a freaking year to put out their goddamn cartoon books. They, they, it, it took them a year to put out Batman Adventures after the show was a hit. It took them a year to put out Superman Adventures after the show was a hit. It just, it was this terrible formula for them where it's like, dude, you're Time Warner. You're this big vertical company. Do a simultaneous launch. We did a simultaneous launch with Ren and Stimpy. Whenever we had something like that at Marvel, you did a simultaneous. Why not with all the advertising on TV, with all this free publicity, why not do a simultaneous launch? And I saw that Justice League Adventures is coming up, and there's nothing on the schedule. So I did a pitch to Dan Rasper, and and you know then Steve was working with him. I went, yeah. why not do a simultaneous launch? You know Justice League Adventures is coming up. You know you're going to do the comic book. Do the launch. And I'm, I'm now in my I've got a year till I'm 35 zone. Yeah. 
so they went, well, this is a good pitch. This is a good proposal. So they, they pitched it. And, of course, they got greenlit. You know, yeah. dar. And I, here I was with an inside track where no other writer knew DC was doing a Just League Adventures book. So I had a zillion springboards into them. And they they bought a couple. So before they even started hunting around for a writer, I'd already gotten two in the drawer. In the end, I did four for them. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was being very gung-ho. I wanted to be the writer. And from their point of view, they had this amazing tool where they had this book with the Justice League where they could, for old-timers who didn't have work, they could throw someone a bone. Right. And for new art, new writers and artists, they could have a nice tryout book that was safe because it was Johnny DC and was going to sell for crap. Right. So they had this great, in their mind, it was this very useful tool. And the last thing they wanted was a regular team. Yeah. And at one point, uh, Steve had to take me aside and say, Dan, stop pitching because this is how we're using the book. And I was like, ah, oh, damn it. But I got my four in. Yeah. And with those four in, Dan Rasper went, you know, if I close my eyes and I can imagine this story without Bruce Tim Art, this is a good Justice League story. Do you want to pitch things for me? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I would love to pitch mainstream. But but the same way like Nell Yamtov did years ago where it was like, I have this revelation. Maybe you should do some superhero stuff. That's a great revelation, sir. Right. <laughs> I never would have thought of that. Thank you. So I got the Dan gave me a break and he let me pitch mainstream DC stuff. And one of the things that came of that was I pitched two things. One was a 12 issue limited series about a superhero where their powers were killing them. And it was uh, even though it was 12 issues, it was kind of there, there was an uber structure to it where the five every other issue was one of the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. Okay. So you'd get like an issue with them teaming up with a hero, and then you get an issue with them dealing with the problem. And DC really liked it. And they went, oh, we really want to do this book. But the other thing I pitched was Twilight Zone in the DC Universe with the Phantom Stranger as Rod Serling. I like all those things. Yeah. And, but every issue would star a different DC character. Sure. So they would have a Twilight Zone-ish adventure. Right. And the Phantom Stranger would go like, Robin, yeah, portrait yeah. of a boy in transition. Little does he know that, you know. Which is also sort of a throwback to the books you were reading as a kid where the, the cast would change every, not change every, but it was like Batman with somebody else in, a, in a Brave and the Bold or the Thing with somebody else in, in a two-in-one. But th- this could be like any character yeah, yeah. suddenly thrown into a Twilight Zone-esque story. story. Sure. And fans, are hard to write, man. Yeah, oh, I would have, I would have had a blast doing that. But that was, and with Phantom Strangers, you're Rod Serling, right. and it was called Strange Adventures. Naturally, there you go. And I, I was just dying to do that because it would be a playground to play with the DCU. And this went through their equivalent of the New Projects Committee, and they really liked the mini, the twelve issue mini. But then they started talking about the other thing. And as and I, it's weird. I'm not in the room. I don't get to make the pitch. The editor's making the pitch. And someone goes, you know, he's pitching a Phantom Stranger book? That's not going to sell. <laughs> but it wasn't a Phantom Stranger book. Right, right. I'm not there to make the pitch. And someone went, well, okay, what if, you know what? You know what's popular? Arkham. You know, Batman's world. Batman's popular. What if, instead of it being the Phantom Stranger, it was one of the crazy people at Arkham, and it's something in their imagination. 
And, and this all bounces around the room like the game of telephone or Chinese whispers. And by the end of it, someone's saying, oh, yeah, that Arkham Asylum thing. So I go in. I'm like, how'd they like my, my pitch? And they went, they really like this mini, but they want you to do your Arkham Asylum miniseries first. <laughs> and not being an idiot, I go, great, boss. And I go off and I'm like, I just got free license to do an Arkham Asylum miniseries. If I do a shower rape scene with the Joker, no one will ever ask me to write Scooby-Doo again. Yeah. And that was like the first thing I wrote was the shower rape scene with the Joker. (laughs) And what was great is like when the Washington Post wrote up a thing about Arkham in the news, they focused on the Joker rape scene in the shower. And I get this call from my mom like, oh, why why couldn't they have done something about Bugs Bunny? Why? why? The the rape in the shower with the Joker? Why did you write that? So that Arkham Asylum was that was it in that, I wanted, I wanted... that year. That was the big project because there was a feeling. Uh, Tom is is very much of the mindset that he doesn't like nepotism. He doesn't like. No, I remember Tom. I remember asking Tom years ago, like you and Dan talk all the time. You clearly are like, yeah. why doesn't? And his he told me I can't do it until he breaks elsewhere. Yeah. Then I will feel like it's not me doing him a favor. It's yep. me hiring a writer who has proven himself out. Which that, that's that's exactly what happened. Once I did Arkham, it was a breakout hit. Right. Like Jeff Johns was pimping it. People, were, which boy, do I appreciate the hell out of that. But it, it Arkham made waves. And once I did Arkham, it was cool for Tom to go. Okay, here's a guy who had a hit, and I heard he was trying to develop She-Hulk, and I had a She-Hulk pitch I'd been pitching for years. So I went, "You got to let me take a crack at She-Hulk." You know, I knew it was a Bake Off, and I knew other people were going to shoot for it, but they they ended up going with me, and I just poured all my love into that thing. And once I was able to do a Marvel book and have it hit, and and be critically acclaimed, then I was able to do other things like Spidey Torch and GLA and. So there's a bunch of stuff that I'm going to ask about. Mm-hmm. You get all you get the acclaim for for Living Hell. Yeah. Is there a part of you where it's it's almost bittersweet that you had to go to this dark dark place to make people notice you or is it like finally they're noticing me I have all these dark ideas? It's more like that. It's more the second where it felt like I was penalized because I could do Looney Tunes. Right. Because I could I could do Looney Tunes well. Obviously there weren't other uh gears on my gearbox and that that so fucking frustrating because everything I me doing Arkham wasn't me going oh no I have to go to this dark place oh no it's like I get to go to this dark okay. place I uh, oh man I got vicious evil shit I want to do <laughs> and now I get to go mwahaha and do it it's it's weird it's like every project I did at Marvel really felt like I was doing something different and it's up until Spider-Man where I'm just like, you know, where you have an actor like Michael Caine and he's not really acting. He's just being Michael Caine. To me, that's like working on Spider-Man. It is just a joy. It is just, there's no switch that needs to go on. I'm I'm just doing it. But with She-Hulk, I was doing a Marvel sitcom, rom-com, you know, Ally McBeal with muscles and right. having fun. I w- it had a distinct worldview with Spidey Torch. It was a different pastiche for each era, but staying with the characters. For GLA, it was macabre dark comedy. For The Thing, it was Bronze Age nostalgia. For Avengers The Initiative, that was like fucked up teen boot camp. You know, that was everything had its vibe. And what's fun is as your readers follow you from project to project, 
as they go from one to the next, they're upset. They're like, but I like that stuff you're doing in the thing, and now Avengers Initiative, you just blew that young kid's head off. Right. That's not what I want. I want, I want the thing in Nighthawk fighting in Murder World. What the hell? And you're like, no, no, this is, this is the next thing. This is, you know, I'm over here. Or people like who would read the She-Hulk stuff. You know, like, She-Hulk is when Dan Slott cared. He obviously doesn't care on Spider-Man. Look at all this effort and love that went into She-Hulk. You know, like, no, it's it's apples and oranges. I'm, I'm trying to do the best Spider-Man book I can over here. That's almost like a guy who's written licensed books and understands how to bring what's right for that property to that property. That, that's the goal, hopefully. You are coming from a place of respecting the property as opposed to coming in and saying, I'm going to do my version of Spider-Man that is this, this, and this, which isn't to say you're not doing that. No, 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 no. But, but, but there's a difference. It's like when someone comes in with authority and says, I'm going to take this character and I'm going to go down a different road that no one's gone down before, th- there's, there's an awe to that. Like when you look at Frank Miller's Daredevil, he just went in and went, screw what anyone else has done on Daredevil. This is what I'm doing for Daredevil. And he left such a mark that so many people have followed where they're doing their version of Frank Miller's Daredevil. But when you look at the original Frank Miller stories, he just goes in with authority and lays down this new tracks. There is merit to doing that. There is merit to just, you know, thank God there wasn't the internet back then. Can you imagine all these people? You're doing J. Jonah Jameson completely wrong. (laughs) Yeah, so it's... Yes, I want to try to get every character's voice right. Yeah. But there's certain characters where I feel like if someone passed me the reins, someone said to me, like, okay, you get to do Captain America or you get to do Iron Man. I would probably take that approach of, okay, we've seen these characters for so long. Let's go somewhere different. And when you do that, I think the, the knee-jerk reaction is, what have you done to my beloved character? You right. know? Every now and then, there's that sea change of this character is now this. You know, Hawkeye is now this, Scarlet Witch is now this, Daredevil is now this, because someone walked in with authority and told their story. I've been at meetings where Bendis has said this phrase, you have to be fearless. We have to be fearless. We have to take these risks. And I agree with that. People, a lot of people say to me, like, you're the anti-Bendis. That's when I came back in 2004. I didn't coin that. The internet coined that. And it followed me. And when Bendis first met me, he stuck out his hand and went, I hear you're the anti-me. And a lot of that comes down to just personal preference of what you want in a comic. Bendis worships at the altar of Aaron Sorkin and David Mamet. And I'm going to say the name wrong. Palandino, the Sherman Palandino from Gilmore Girls and now Bunheads. He just loves that to death. He loves the language and the sound of dialogue. And, and the way these characters interact. And I worship at the altar of Stan Lee. <laughs> you right, know? Right. I remember when I was working on She-Hulk, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Brian wasn't reading it. They, he was very nice. Like He was like, oh, he you know, slots off doing his own thing, all the power to him. But I was pretty sure he wasn't reading it. And I remember there was some Marvel retreat where he made this grand proclamation, I'm bringing back thought balloons. My Avengers will now have thought balloons. But he was also part of the movement with Casada and other guys that went, you know, back no during the Bill Jemis, yeah. the Jemis era of no more thought balloons. Yeah. Thought balloons are kid-like. They're childish. We've evolved. Yeah. Our comics are mature. They're, they're sophisticated. Yeah. And when I was doing She-Hulk, I, I aggressively looked at these ideas that Bill Jemis had laid out for how to do a comic and did the exact opposite. 
that 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 was like a, a badge of honor you know that a story should be six issues long and have a slow burn and a build and don't open on action and there were all these certain bill Jemis rules and she hulk was under the radar so i was like i'll be the anti-book i'll do done in one stories i'll open on action i'll have thought balloons all over the place so i was doing thought balloons for years you were making comics the marvel way damn straight in a, in a traditional in comic the, book sense. In the mighty Marvel manner. The pure sense. Yeah, the, all the, sh- all the if shit I, I can, If I can join you in something like a super old man. No, but like all the shit I loved when I was a kid. But that's, I mean, I, we're, we're going to completely spin out now. But don't, for me, as an observer and as a reader and, and somebody who creates comics, so much of what all those new rules and sort of new paradigm of, of mainstream comic books is people embarrassed to be working on superhero comics. Bing. The, the, I read, it's super I, frustrating. I read a review of a very excellent comic, which does that sophisticated take, and I love that comic. But the reviewer was proudly boasting why he loved the comic, and one of the things he put up there was, it didn't insult your intelligence by having, and I'm paraphrasing, locator captions. He was saying it didn't insult your intelligence by having you know words that said two hours later or the I next day. I need those. You know what? Fuck you, reviewer. <laughs> you know, air... I get lost air, reading comics sometimes when they don't have those things. My, my rule is air on the side of clarity. Yes. Always air on the side of clarity. I want a seven-year-old kid to pick up this comic and follow it. And you know what? If he can follow it and it's great and you can follow it and it's great, why the hell exclude him? Why put traps in front of his way so he can't read your goddamn comic? Because then it won't be cool for a grown-up to read comics, no, Dan. Y- you know what? Some of the greatest freaking movies of all time were rated G. Of course. And, and I bet in your top 10 movies, whoever you are listening to this podcast, there are many G-rated movies. Did you like Star Wars? Well, look, I've, I, you know? when I was working at Nickelodeon, there was a conversation of who's the, the best movie villain of all time. I think Entertainment Weekly had put it out, and they said it was Hannibal Lecter. And mm. Everybody was talking about who's the, the, the greatest villain, and everybody was saying Darth Vader. Wicked Witch. And I exactly Thank I you. said, the Wicked Witch of the West, there's Wicked nothing Witch scarier yep. that, that terrifies children. Yep. And is such a, I mean, she sets this the scarecrow on fire. Did, did you see how without you even opening your mouth, I went straight to Wicked Witch we of the West? We are sympathetical. I man. know. It's, <laughs> when, when I was a kid, we, we watched, how, we watched uh, every Thanksgiving they had, uh, this is before DVR and Vietnam. Yeah, they would show it on CBS or whatever yeah, it was. Every Thanksgiving, it was a, a holiday mainstay, they would show Wizard of Oz. And whenever the Wicked Witch came on, I ran out of the room. She was horrifying. She was horrifying. She terrifying. What yeah. best villain of, of any freaking movie? Lampbook turns into a donkey in Pinocchio. <gasps> that thing is freaky scary. That that is that is scary. I mean, you can do compelling, intense, serious. You know, yeah, anyway, this, for, this for, goes for, in a whole no, no, for, but for 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 everyone. Yeah. Why? I, I hate this idea that. A sophisticated comic is for an adult. Fuck you. It's a guy in fucking tights. Well. It should be for everyone. And Because and, you know what? And this is going to sound crass, and people are going to go, oh, my God. And I don't know a better way to put it, because this gets to the point. We need new smokers. Absolutely. If we're a drug, we need new smokers. It's and a drug. 
Yeah. So if you do this exclusionary comic, this sophisticated comic, fuck you. This is for kids too, man. A kid should be able to read this. And I read stuff when I was like eight years old. I read the the death of Captain Stacy. You know, people died. I, I read as a kid. I read the Stanley drug issues of Spider Man. Mm-hmm. You know, people tripping out like the stuff that like nowadays. You wouldn't think, you know, I, I was fine. It didn't torment me. It didn't leave me this, you know, emotionally crippled person. You can do stuff. Kids are more resilient than you think. And there's also, when you go back to those things, the, the delivery mechanism was not as intense as you remember it being. Do, do, you, do you remember when you first read Watchmen? And I read it in college. It, but when you go back and you read Watchmen, Rorschach is so Tame. Yeah, nothing is as intense when you go back and yeah. revisit it. I mean, I, I I remember this from when I was at Marvel. Everybody was trying to do their take on G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. Like, they, everybody loved G.I. Joe when we were kids, and they all wanted to do the. And it was always so much more intense and just heavy compared to when you watch that terrible cartoon that I still <laughs> love. It's not. I mean, it's, it's goofball. It's totally goofball. But when you are nine, you, you, it is everything. You're so invested. It's no, Batman. It's Batman from the '60s. Oh no, totally. You, you buy it as serious. Yeah. I was worried watching that as a kid. Oh my god, because it would end on the cliffhanger. Yeah. Batman and Robin are trapped in the giant snow cone. Yeah. And Mister Freeze is going <laughs> to kill them. I hope they get out. Yeah. Now you have you've you've broken back in to Marvel. You, you, like we're in 2004 now? Well, I'm saying like right now, modern now. day. Yeah. Modern day. Yeah, because 2004 is when I broke back in. But you, you have a philosophy of, of writing comics for everyone that a kid can read. But the current comic book world seems less interested in that. I, I don't know. Is it, is I, it frustrating? I just got an email from Steve Wacker telling me he just gave his son all of uh, Spider-Man 700 to read, which is an enormous comic. And Zach loved it. And I was like, phew. I'm like, I'm, uh, sometimes I get a complaint that, oh, your, your work is too expository. You explain too much. And I'm like, damn straight I explain too much. I want someone who's eight to be able to pick this up and read it. I, the different, when I was eight and I was reading a comic, Stan Lee would have all this, you know, really purple prose in there. And if it went over my head, I figured it out. I, I, I went in, I like, I'd pull out a dictionary and look up that word. And then part of me liked it because comics were my thing. So I'd be walking around talking to my folks, you know, using words like mayhem. Sure. Something like that is great. Do, do you find, like, okay, yes, you are writing comics Yay. that an eight-year-old could read and enjoy. Mm. But it seems... That in the, in the grand in the mainstream universe, the that's not the audience. Um, I, mean, I mean, I, I think the, the most of the again, com- if people are telling you you use too much expo- exposition. I think most of the people who are reading comics now, the lion's share of the people who are reading comics, are people who've been reading comics forever. Right. So you're looking at you know thirty year olds and forty year olds, but we are breaking in. In, in other places, we are, you know, someone goes off and they see the Avengers. Someone goes, uh, you know, watches Disney XD and sees Ultimate Spider-Man. They will find a comic or, or now on their iPad. We're not this. Everyone's so scared that we've we've built into this, you know, creature eating its own self. Like we're we're only writing comics for 30 year olds. I don't think that's the case. I think if you write a good comic you know, like a Hickman comic or a Jason Aaron comic and some, you give it to a little kid, they'll, 
they'll pick up on it. I don't think it's intimidating. I think the thing we have to be careful about is if we use continuity, that we explain enough of it that you're not lost, and we make sure that our comics are a good single unit of entertainment, that if you get to the end of it and you felt like that went by really quick, that's not satisfactory for anybody. You don't want to read a sixth of a story, but if you read a good thing that's a chapter in a six-part story and it's a really good chapter, that's a good thing too. You know, then you, you got to be there next week. You got to be there next month. I, I don't think it's, it's this thing that scares kids away. I think the problem we might have on that level is something like an Xbox or a PS3 is far too enticing. That if you're a kid and here's your free time, do you want to play the next, you know, Call of Duty or play, take some time and play some, you know, Angry Birds or, you know, Where's My Water? Or do you want to read a comic? The thing we have that, and no offense to guys like Valiant or Dark Horse, the thing we've got is we've got Spider-Man. We've got Captain America. We've got these guys that you've just seen in movies. Same with DC. Sure. You know, and that's what's attractive. I think that's what could get people back into comics. Uh, and especially some of the new things we're trying digitally, like the infinite comics that we've started doing. Yeah. I guess I guess my question comes from you know, earlier. You mentioned that people were referring to you as the anti-Bendis, oh. and and it almost puts you, whether you whether you want to be there or not, as an anomaly in a field of of maybe not the case anymore, but at, at the time. So, do you feel like you are old school or? Somebody um, fighting a tide? I, I'm definitely old school. I don't know about fighting a tide because Brian has a way of doing comics that makes him one of the number one comic book writers in the world. And people are drawn to it and people love it. And there are Bendis comics I enjoy reading, even though I'm called the anti-Bendis. For a long time, like if I had friends that wanted to, you know, that hadn't been reading comics for a while, one of my go-to books, one of my, you know, entry-level drugs to sneak them into comics was volume two of ultimate spider-man when you read learning curve that is you know i look at that and i'm like that's better than a lot of the scripts for spider-man movies that is such a good spider-man movie and it's it's six or seven issues of ultimate spider-man i don't know if i would have enjoyed them enjoyed it as much if i'd read them month to month Mm -hmm. but when you read it all as a unit in that graphic novel form it's one of the best Spider-Man stories ever told. And that's coming from a guy that's right, Spider-Man. Yeah. No, it's brilliant. It's And, oh, God, and the, the capper to it all where Peter and MJ are having the talk in his bedroom. I didn't read it. Oh, man. No, go read it. Go read Learning Curve. All right. So I want to talk about one other thing before we go into some philosophical talk. Mm. There was a period before 2004 where you hadn't broken back in at Marvel and you were writing the licensed stuff where you and Manny Galan were working on pitches for cartoons. Yeah, outside of comics, something something beyond the world of comics, and I yeah, to talk- we even we even we, we sold some of that. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that because well, there's two things that are interesting to me. One mm-hmm. is that it was something outside of comics. It was you know maybe you know, if the goal was comics, you were taking an aside route, or it was just a different goal. You were still writing. Yeah, I was I was still doing stuff like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and all the licensed stuff. Yeah, I was doing stuff for Archie, stuff for Acclaim during that time. And in fact, the one of the projects we optioned, which nothing ever came of it, like you know, it's like that bit in Pulp Fiction, you know, with Uma Thurman and the pilot. You know, yes. where, yeah, I've written some of it, but the nice thing is we got paid. 
we so, got so option let's set, money. Let's but, set this up. But, so, but the thing, the thing that we optioned, that was something we pitched at one point to to DC Comics, and DC at one point was going to buy it. So it was very much in a superhero zone. It was very much a superhero comic thing, and it was originally intended to be a six issue superhero comic miniseries. So let's let's just set the set the stage so people who are listening who don't know who any of these people are will know. Mm-hmm. What's, so Manny Galan was somebody I worked for at Nickelodeon. Yep, and he was one of your brain trust. Uh, yeah, and also we came up together through Marvel. Right. Uh, I had finished the internship program, and I was on staff, and he had just kind of become an intern. Tom Brevoort at that point was like an assistant editor, and so was uh, a friend of ours, Evan Skolnick. And right. we were like a crew that always went out to lunch sure. every day with each other. Yeah, so I actually, the things that interest me are, a, the experience of pitching cartoons and that, mm-hmm. whole, that whole universe. Yep. And, and B, is yeah. uh, working with Manny. Because I worked with him under mm-hmm. him, and I can't imagine the two of you working as a pair. Um, for the most part, I alpha dogged it. Okay, you know it's, it's that's impressive. No, because some people, you know, you have to, you know, it's it's really hard in a collaborative method if if someone isn't the alpha dog. Sure, because someone has to make the final calls and the. But you know, at the same time, you, you even if you're alpha dogging it, you have to, you know, you want you want to have a process where everyone's happy. So, you know, if someone throws out a good idea, you go with the good idea. And there there were some times where uh, Manny would turn to his girlfriend, I can't remember if, if she was his wife by then, and treat it almost like an arbiter. Like we were arguing about something and there was, it was an idea I'd had ever since high school and we were developing it into a cartoon. And it, I felt so much ownership of it before Manny ever drew a single sketch about it Yeah, that I was very... You know, no, we're doing it this way. No, we're doing it that way. And there is a key component to it about what the name of this country, this character was coming from. And it's really hard to talk about it in such a way where, because I don't want to give it, because it is something, something I'd like to do. But I was talking about it and the name I had for the country wasn't sexy. It wasn't catchy, but it perfectly described what it was. And the name of the country that that Manny wanted to call it wasn't a name of a country. It ended in town. And I'm like, that doesn't work because he comes from a country. He doesn't come from a town. Because it was all about a character who's effectively an immigrant to America. Sure. But it didn't work. But town worked better with the name. It, it had a better ring to it. I'm like, he doesn't come from a town. It's a country. We were arguing over it. Mm-hmm. And he turns to his girlfriend or possibly wife. He said, what do you think? And she said, oh, it's town. And I got outvoted by someone who wasn't in the process, and suddenly we were doing it. Uh, you know, like, all right, we're doing it your way. Jesus. <laughs> but it was like my idea since freaking high school. So let's talk about just the process of pitching a cartoon. Of How, how do you, how did that even, how, question mark? Uh, we just did it. Uh, Manny had contacts through Nickelodeon, mm-hmm. and we just pursued it. Like right now, I'm pitching stuff, like a, a couple cartoons to Cartoon Network, and I'm pitching a live-action sci-fi show I'd like to do. And I've been pitching it to different production companies. And it's just like my agent set it up. So I'm actually, right. I'm actually doing a pitch tomorrow in the middle of my day. So That's exciting. Yeah, no, it's, it's very exciting. You put on a suit for something like that? No, I'm doing it over the phone. Okay. I'm just, but I, I have gone into, like, I've gone into, like, Paramount. I've gone into, you know, the different people in the Paramount 
family sure whether it was nickelodeon or mtv or you know and pitch them things over the years it, uh, part of the problem is uh, it's just so easy for me now in comics mm-hmm. that you know this is my home and i know how the industry works and i have all my contacts and i know all my guys for like artists and things and i i'm just so much more comfortable working in comics even licensed comics there's i understand the pitfalls and where the problems so on some level it feels more free like i was pitching my project uh this sci-fi thing and for three different companies there was a moment where someone's like but what's the tone and I was like, well, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like that. And then at one point I said Battlestar Galactica. The minute I said Battlestar Galactica, they picked up. They went, oh, Battlestar Galactica. Right, right. I'm like, yeah, but it's, it, it's about this, though, and this and this and this. But it's like Battlestar Galactica. It's like now they had a hook. Mm-hmm. So it's like when I had the next pitch, they're like, what's the tone? I'm like, Battlestar Galactica. Oh, Battlestar Galactica. You're like, oh, jeez. <laughs> You know, it's like, you, and there's some of that too, but it's like, it's a language. It's almost like you have to learn a different language to pitch different properties and to pitch different things. And when in, I'm in comics, they just, they, they know it's me yeah. and I can just say, here's the idea. Here's the, the world. Here's the thing. But for the most part, the weird thing is that ever since I made my pitch for She-Hulk and then after She-Hulk, Tom came to me and said, what, what could you do with GLA? And I wrote up a pitch for GLA. And beyond that, the only thing I've really gone and pitched anyone was Spider-Man Torch, Human Torch. Uh, everything else, it's been people coming to me saying, what would you do if we gave you this? Right. Well, actually, I, I, no, actually, I, did a, I pitched uh, Avengers Initiative at a summit. I, I kind of worked it out and told everyone, here's how I'd like to do it if you let me do this. So it, it's weird. I mean, what I'm doing now a lot is I pitch stories. Right. When I'm, you know... We'll have a spider meeting, and I'll be like, "Well, here's what we want to do for this, that, and the other." And it's, but it's very rare that they, you know, they're trusting me to write Spider-Man. It's very rare they go, "Oh, you're not doing that." I have an email floating out right now. There's part of me that went, "I'm worried about the opening of this next Spider-Man story uh, for Superior. I'm worried it's too political. Um, am I being too political? Am I allowed to do this? Like in the days of Steve Gerber." You get just, you know, wear the biggest liberal banner on your, you know. Sure, sure. And, and just blah, and, and get all your, your politics out of your system. Or if you're Chuck Dixon, you could do it the other way. Right. You know, but the, there seems to be a feeling now of don't do that, especially in our polarized country. Yeah. That why tick off half the readership. But, yeah, like I, I look at this scene with Massacre that I want to write. And it, it really feels like me going, we really need to put an assault rifle ban into effect. Like, and here's Massacre going to a gun show, right, <laughs> yeah. buying all this equipment easily. You know. But here's the other thing. That's not the story. The story, the story isn't about Massacre getting these guns easily. The story is really what is he doing with these guns? Mm-hmm. Because it's actually very weird and twisted. The, the guts of the story is kind of neat from what he's doing, what his evil plan is. And what is Superior Spider-Man going to do to stop him? And how far will he go? Because we've seen Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, try to go after uh, Massacre. And even though Massacre has killed you know, dozens of people, and you know if he gets out, he will kill again, Spider-Man can't bring himself sure. to either kill him or to let him be killed he's a superhero because he's a superhero 
it's the Batman problem. The, the, the longer Batman stories go on with the Joker, the more in aggregate Batman loses. Because every time Joker gets out, he kills 12 more people. You know, so it's like, wow, you suck, Batman. You know, there's a reason Punisher doesn't have a rogues gallery. Right. Which is great. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, so I, I'm sure he goes to sleep at night just fine. Well, except for the, the horrible memories of his family dying in Central Park. He goes to sleep just fine. No, he doesn't. He, he lives in horror. He can never sleep. The eternal war goes on. Speaking of <laughs> eternal wars. Yes. You have a number of times in our conversation invoked what I will call the angry, whiny fanboy voice. Okay. 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 I now, see where this is going. You have, <laughs> you, have a, you have a bit of a history oh, interacting fudgicals. with people in the, wor- in the virtual world. Um, You've had some blow-ups. Yeah, but you want to know, here's the thing. Whatever my past history was... The, the, main, the, the inherent question here is, why do you bother this, to engage? This is a very salient question, and the irony is... I have gone through a seismic change in my approach to the internet, and it, it really came about in some kind of neat ways. So let's, let's set up the before. Okay. The before... Yes. ...would get into rows with people... Rose, right? Would that be an appropriate? Rouse. Would that be an appropriate terminology? Yes. Many of verbal them, fisticuffs. Yes, many of them <laughs> uh, goofy code names. Oh my god! Without faces. At one point, while I was working on She-Hulk, there is a rabid base of She-Hulk fans that were setting up an online petition based on interviews I had given. None of my writing ever seen. Just interviews I'd given to promote the upcoming She-Hulk book had started an online petition to get me fired from the book before it ever came out because I didn't understand She-Hulk. And a lot of it came from people that were really offended that she was going to be able to turn back into Jen Walters again because they liked drawing She-Hulk, they liked writing She-Hulk fanfic and all this stuff about this very large, green, buxom, overly muscled woman and the idea of her being a tiny stick figure woman half the time when 22 pages of art could be dedicated to this bodacious, plump, giant Amazon just annoyed the hell out of them. And I tried to engage them and go, no, it's okay. You know, I've read every She-Hulk comic ever written, every appearance she's had in the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, Marvel 2-in-1, Marvel Team-Up, the original, you know, runs of her series. I, I know this character backwards and forwards. This is all about her character, and it's, it's going to be true to it. And I'd be trying to placate them. And it was all really coming down to this whole, we want to see green titties. And one of these people... <laughs> was writing all these highfalutin letters and emails and you know message board things about their grandmother and how she broke through the glass ceiling and how this was all you know about female empowerment and i was taking shield and taking her power away by making her this weak thing, and and I, I didn't understand what She-Hulk was about. And no, this was just a guy. And someone said, no, "Don't argue with this guy. He's written. Here's a link to his fanfic." And it was creepy and over the top. And so all this garbage about his grandmother and glass ceilings was nothing. He just wanted to see a big green woman for twenty-two pages. Right. And because I'm the world's biggest idiot, uh, his name, his code name was Super Jizz. Yeah. 
So I've been arguing Ugh. for months with Super Jizz. And I remember doing one of those. It's like that old joke that they had on the internet of I can't go to sleep. Someone on the internet is wrong. Yeah. I'm up at like 2 in the morning typing away, like responding to his comments and no. And my girlfriend's like, come to bed. Come to bed. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Yeah. And she comes over and she's like, you're arguing with Super Jizz. Yeah. You're arguing with a man named Super Jizz. What is... Stop it. Yeah. Go to bed. <laughs> and it's I, something you're too close to it because here's the thing it's like you, you work on this stuff. Uh, Mike Carlin at DC had the worst ever pep talk he gave me. It was just. It was terrible because I was I was stuck on something and sometimes you're stuck and you need the editor to give you the Newt Rockney or to to give you the turn this in or I'm going to fire you. There's like so many different gears on the gearbox of snap the guy out of it and get the work in. Hand me your video game. I'm paying, I'm putting in the closet. Yeah, sure. exactly. But you know, usually the Newt Rockney works for me. The good old you can do it, Dan. Come on. And Carlin just gave me the worst speech. He just, like, when I was locking on something, he, I can't remember if it was Arkham Asylum or Justice League, but he said, Dan, writing's a lonely thing. You sit in your apartment alone, you're writing on your computer alone, you, you know, you're, you're getting all this view up, but in the end, you're not really connecting with anyone, and you're alone. And he just kept saying alone over and over again. But it, I think in his mind, he was setting it up as a challenge. You know, but no, it was just making me feel like crap. I was like <laughs> digging a deeper hole. Yeah, but like, I'm all alone in here, man. I'm alone, and I have to write this, and I don't know what I'm doing. So yeah, but but there there is a truth to it, which is you're in this box, and it, at the end of the day, it's just you and the writing. So you get very personal and attached to it. And sometimes when people are, you know. I like to think that if someone offers me criticism, like, and it's constructive criticism, and they come at it from a place of, well, I think this could have worked better if you did this, this, or that, or have you thought about this, this, or that? But if they just come at you and, you suck, yeah, you know, that's when I get mad. Or if someone comes after someone in my creative team, yeah, his art sucks. Well, if you come after someone on my creative team, I, that makes me even madder. Yeah, you Be- lose your S. Yes, I, I, because if I've lost your S, if I see you going after one of my guys, and I know that they're like chained at their desk and they're working, you know, crazy hours to get that coloring or lettering or inking or penciling done, I, I want to come after you if you go after them, and not not going after them if you're saying they need to work on their perspective or they need to no if you just the whole you suck or this sucks or I hate you and. I used to get really upset about stuff like that, but then things happen. Like you'll go to a show and then you'll meet that person. (laughs) That person introduces themselves and you meet them and you go, no, 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 it's no, it's not like, no, no. I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Oh, it's the guy in the fat captain Kirk shirt. And he's no, it's not that it's, it's, there are things that surprise you. Like I had no idea. I was arguing with someone who was 12 years old. You know, I had, of course, they're going to talk like that. Or I had no, you know, or worst case scenario, I had no idea that person has a, a disability, like a learning disability or this or that, obviously, or any number of things where you just go, oh, okay. Because that doesn't come across in the internet. Of course. Tone it, is, it, tone never comes across. No, you just get, 
everything they just vomited onto a page <laughs> about something they're very passionate about. But like I've been working on Spider-Man, on Amazing Spider-Man now, where after Stanley and Dave Michelinie, I'm the number three guy for volume, not quality, not quality, volume. Sure. So. Of course there's going to be – how could there not be people out there, you know, in any stretch of the imagination? I've seen people bitch about Alan Moore, for God's sakes. I've seen, you know, I look at all the shit Bendis puts up with or Loeb or, you know, there are people who hate Brubaker. I love Brubaker. I will, Brubaker could write something on a napkin. I want to read it. Mm. But, you know, everyone's got different tastes. Everyone's got different opinions. And someone's going to hate every damn thing I've ever written. And that's fair. That's cool. To me, like one of the big things that's changed in between these interviews, I've done a show in London, I've done a, the New York Comic Con, and we made some announcements about Superior Spider-Man, one of them being that Superior Spider-Man is not Peter Parker. Right. The minute that announcement came out, and also that Peter Par- that Spider-Man and Mary Jane are getting back together, and Spider-Man is not Peter Parker. Between that combination of two different announcements, I have been inundated with tweets and letters and things death threats and things describing my anatomy and what they would do to different parts of my anatomy and to the point where it's such overload that i found it funny that you know what a, come on it just got to this silly point my mom saw me looking at my twitter on my laptop and she saw that like one person had sent me a twit pic of their you know here's what you did to spider-man here's a picture of my gun collection and my mom was, you have to report that man. You have to, I'm like, that's like some 12-year-old kid in Texas. Who gives a, you know, the, ma, it's fine. This guy does not need to be, I'm, I write Spider-Man comics. Someone's going to shoot me in the head. But then the flip side is I do the show in London. I do the show in New York Comic Con. And the lines were enormous. And everyone's bringing up all their comics. And everyone's like showering me with praise and how much they love what we're doing with the book. And Dear God, that's an ego boost. There, you know, where you just sit there and you're like, yeah, these people hate me, but these people are always going to be with me. And also my contract came up and different people wanted me to do different things. I can't really talk about stuff, sure. but just with people fighting over you and then trying to like fight each other and throw more money at you and and things where I know what offers I was getting. Yeah. And it's because of the work I've been doing on Spider-Man. And then on top of that, now people know with Marvel Now, I'm staying on Spider-Man. So every person in the world at Marvel did musical chairs, but I get to stay on Spider-Man because Marvel has that much faith. Right. And I wanted to stay. So between that and all this stuff, I'm like, these people want me on Spider-Man. These fans want me on Spider-Man. I'm having a blast doing it. What the hell do I care if, you know, that person or that person or 20 people or 100 people or 1,000 people are mad? It doesn't matter because I got, uh, you know, that times 100 over here and I've got this over there. And I'm, at the end of the day, I'm having a blast. So I'm sorry you don't like what I'm doing. Maybe you'll like Captain America. <laughs> you know, right. it's all cool. And the other thing was Doctor Who. Okay. Doctor Who. I am like the biggest Doctor Who fan. And one of the things that's just been a treasure this year is I've got to meet so many people associated with the show and associated with my childhood. And they've all been wonderful. They've all been fantastic ambassadors to the show. They've all been one. I, I've, I watch how they interact with fans, how they've interacted with me. 
on a personal level and I just go, wow, I want to be like that. Not, not working on Doctor Who. Well, yeah, I would love to work on Doctor Who, but I'm an American. It's never going to happen. But no, I go, that's how you do it. Yeah. You know, that's how you interact with your fan community. You're, you're gracious and you're open and you're just nice. And if, if something's not working, you, you're bulletproof. Right. You know. To um, the haters. Yeah. It's really been inspirational to me to have those kind of reactions to people. You know, there you go. I'm happy. I'm glad to hear it. Because, you know, I I had this conversation with Tom as well where, you know, Tom engages. And there was a period where Tom was the beloved guy on the Internet. And now he is the hated guy on the Internet. And I, you know, part of me says, like, why, why do you even bother... Well, I think a lot of that is because Tom makes himself available on the Internet. Yes. And Tom does that. I told Tom a number of times, just stop. Stop on Formspring. Don't do it. Yeah. Formspring is where they go at him the most. And some of the stuff is horrible. Like someone will say something like, I want to rape your family. Yeah. You know, and you're like, this is a guy. You know, Tom. Sure. Tom lives for comics. And Tom, this is Tom saying, I'm making myself available to you. I, I had a Formspring going on for long enough where I was verified. I was verified Dan Slot oh, on Formspring. Oh, well. And you just get more and more of this with the anonymous... You know, that's part of the, supposedly the fun of Forum Spring is you can ask questions anonymously. You know, and it's that whole thing. Is this some 12-year-old kid who doesn't get it, who hasn't reached that level of maturity yet? Or is this some really scary 40-year-old guy? But I was getting some scary crap. And two things kind of put it over the edge. At one point, someone put up my personal information in a question. Like, are you the Dan Slot who lives at this uh, address nice. and this and has this home phone number? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> if you don't do this and this and this in your stories, I'm going to I'm going to post this somewhere else. It, w- it was pretty much a threat. Yeah. To pretty much expose me. Well, and that, what, that is a threat. That's yeah. not pretty much a threat. And what that did was that meant I had to go with the obvious things with the police. Yeah. And then have my home phone number unlisted and changed. And that's just me trying to make myself open and answer people's questions and then people wanting to abuse it. But that wasn't the thing that put me over the top. The thing that put me over the top was someone sent me a blind question to purposefully spoil one of the surprises in the Avengers movie the day before I was going to see the screening. Uh, Someone... They got you right where it hurt. Yeah. Someone said... But jokingly, like, you know, like, ha, you didn't answer my question about this or, you know, blah. How do you feel that so-and-so dies in the Avengers movie? And I was like, that, you know, you can put my private phone number on, (laughs) but the minute you ruin Avengers for me, and that's when I shut down my account. (laughs) That was what did it. Not personal threats, not people saying I'm going to find your sisters and blah, blah, blah them. No, no, no. It was you just ruined Avengers for me. You prick. You know, the other stuff is all internet crazy. That was you just screwed Avengers for me. I was so mad. You know, but the, the end of the thing is it's like, you know, it's all, there are so many people out there that are positive yes. about stuff. Also, like, you know, so if someone sends me something truly horrible, like a death threat, and I find it funny, I just retweet it. And it cracks me up. I'm just like, can you believe this guy? Right, right. And what inevitably happens is I've got like 20,000 followers. You know, eventually like 800 of them jump on that guy up and down. And I don't have to do a thing, which is hysterical. It's like Sebastian says in Little Mermaid. You give him an inch. He'll swim all over you. No, but it's, it's, here's the thing. It's, it's worth it. 
And the reason why it's worth it is you go to a con and you meet somebody and they go, I, I love everything you did. And, oh, thank you for doing this. And and I know that, you know, shoe on the other foot. If I was like a, a young comic enthusiast, if I was someone who was like a big fan, if I got to like write a Twitter or something that was retweeted by John Romita Sr., if, if I got to ask Stan a question, if I got to do this stuff, oh, my God, that's awesome. That would have been like the greatest thing through this magic little box on my desk. And when the shoe's on the other foot and I see it from the other side and someone who appreciates that, it makes it all worth it. It, it really does. It's, it's really cool. All right. Let's talk about deadlines <laughs> and, 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 and procrastination. Oh, and I mean, you said it yourself. You said that the, the weak link of the spider team is you. Totally. That Absolutely. you overthink everything. Yes. That you are you are plagued yes. by the things you're writing. Yes. So let's let's talk about. It. I am not a therapist. I am not yes. uh, do, trained. Do you know? I think it was during Spider-Man six nine eight. There's a point when I was procrastinating, and it was it was an all time gem. I went onto YouTube, and I watched four different YouTube videos about how to stop procrastinating. Thank you. Thank you. Nothing's ever topping that. And, so, and I there was no hint of irony when I was doing this. No, you were looking for a solution. Yes. And I was that was great. I, I wonder if there's another one. So I was so I was trying to think about it. I was trying to think about what, what could be like, you know, because look, I prefer everybody does it. Yeah. Clearly. Uh well not everybody. Some people are the kids that would come home from school and do their homework and then no, they're I was freaks. never that person. But like a part of me was like, well maybe it's because you're writing Spider-Man, the dream job. You're doing it. So yes. There's so much pressure and intensity. Yes. But you yourself said that when you were doing Arkham, you had your, your PlayStation uh, taken away. PlayStation 2 was so, put in a closet So at this DC. is not Spider-Man exclusive. This is a, a thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rare that there's that thing where you have that story, you really want to tell it, and, and it's the funnest thing in the world to tell it, and now you've done it, and it's done no it never happens there's never been that magic story where that happens it really is the thing you sweat and you care about and you pick at it or you 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 can't jump off the high board you know you just can't is it is it anxiety is it like a nervous anxiety thing that keeps you from totally you you want it to be the best thing it can be and, and you're afraid you don't have the chops for it or every line you're going to put down is going to be wrong. Or there, there's always that thing. But then, then something happens. You know, like when the water's too cold and you keep dipping your toe and you don't want to go in. When you take that leap and you jump in and you break the surface and and you start swimming around, you get to that moment where wait, this is awesome and and everything starts flowing and everything's great. There are moments where you're, you know, it's it's weird. Like, I'll get art back on a story. And, oh, the guy didn't draw exactly what was in my head. Oh, this isn't going to work. Oh, how am I going to work with this? And, uh But then you work with someone and they draw it better than the job was in your head. You're like, oh my God, they drew it so much better than the job that was in my head. I can't wake up. I can't rise up to this challenge. I can't match this art. There's always something. There's always going to be, you know, Brevoort laughs at it. Sure. He's got like, you know, his 12 speeches, you know, queued up. Which one I need that day to get me through something. And look, you're not the only creative person to have this. I mean, we we all do it. And, and you know, 
you tell yourself you're going to change. I've been doing this for 20 years. I was that's what I was, I was about to doing say. It for You've 20 been doing years. this for a long time. You you yeah. clearly have achieved the level of 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 uh, achievement because I can't think of another word. <laughs> achieved the level of achievement. But you, you've lead, achievingly. You've achieved the level of success and validation. Achieviation. That one would think. Achievishness. Yes. One would Achieviosity. think that, that would bleed in a little bit to go, I got this. Yes. But, <laughs> but again, and again, look, I, I understand. I'm just trying to understand. It. I'm trying the, to almost reflect the mirror to see if maybe there's answers for both of us. There, there was a point when I was working on Ren and Stimpy where it's like, you know how when, you, when you're a little kid and you're learning how to ride a bike? Yes. And if you try to lift your hands off the bars, you fall. That whole bike goes down. If you lift your feet off the pedals, that bike goes down. But once you start learning how to ride it, it's almost like there's that magic switch that goes off. The minute you can do it, you can do whatever you damn well want. My, look, my hands are off the thing. My feet are off the pedals. I'm standing on top of the bike. I'm doing where, where if you did that like two weeks ago, you'd be on the asphalt. With Ren and Stimpy, there was a point where I was sweating at the beginning, and then I got the characters' voices, and I'm telling all this stuff, and I'm doing all this stuff, and then I got to the point where, okay, I'm bored. I am bored. I need to. I need to add the triple lutz. I need to. You know, I need to go and and do this with a blindfold on, and then it started becoming something really cool. Like, what can I do with the medium of comics? What can I do with this? Like, I've got this down. And honestly, with with Spider-Man, like, when I was, when I was working on She-Hulk, I would go back when I'd write every new issue of She-Hulk and reread everything I'd done to that point. Like, to try to have the, the characters' voices right and to try to, what's the path of the overall story that I'm telling her, the story arc. Uh, I would go back and I would read old issues of She-Hulk and John Byrne FF issues with She-Hulk to make sure all the voices was growing organically. From, I, I would really sweat all this stuff. There's a point when you're doing Spider-Man and you're heading into year five. You don't do any of that. You know, you know it. It's, it's, it's in your DNA now and it's wired. And I'm I'm getting to the point where, you know, we're doing this big thing for Superior. And part of that makes me feel like, okay, hand, hands off the handlebars. Okay, now we're, we're going to the next stage. Mm-hmm. And, and that's exciting. You know, that okay, now I've, now I've got the rush. Now I've got the, okay, now I'm getting the bigger hit. <laughs> right, right. So there, there's, there's a feeling with that. Because the thing is that, that pressure, that's part of the gas in the engine. And if you're not feeling it, you need to do something to to load that up. Sure. And hopefully for fans it's like wow, he's doing that with his hands off the, you know, off the handlebars. That's kind of neat. We'll start, you know, doing new things and you know, when I get to the point where if I'm writing Spider-Man and I'm just telling the fourth story with Electro, that's when you put a bullet in my head. <laughs> that that's that's when you go, okay, your time on Spider-Man is done. You know, let the next guy, you know, give up the chair, ungrip the chair, <laughs> you know. Well, you've just fed me the segue into our last bit of conversation. And, and I say this now that people who, who tuned in to hear you talk about Spider-Man and what's happening are, are going to be horribly disappointed because yes. we, we did not address any of it. And that was my intention. <laughs> but Sucker. But what I do want to talk to you about is at some point. You will no longer be writing Spider-Man. No! At some point, right? I mean, and, and there are different ways you could go. You could, 
you know, there's the, the Seinfeld model. You go out on top. Yeah, that, that last episode of Seinfeld was really on top. I like it. <gasps> oh, my God, that was pain. We're not going down that road. Okay. There's Bendis, who left you left Avengers after after a run after of his own volition. Eight years, eight stunning years. Or there's the Chris Claremont route. You, you never leave, and then eventually you are sidelined. Oh, but come on. you look at Claremont's history on it. How long was Claremont on X Men? A long time. How long was Claremont? Claremont, man, I was in high school, and then even after you know you had you got up to the Jim Lee era. You know, and, and he starts segueing on to other stuff. Then he's on Extreme X-Men. Yeah, then he's yeah. on, you know. So it's like. So it, the question isn't when are you going to leave Spider-Man? Because yeah. that's, that's not for no, any but, of us to decide. But you have to sometime. You but have the to. question is, do you think about what's next? And, and how do you think about it when, when Spider-Man was, is the pinnacle? When, when I, I see my hand reaching into the drawer. There's an old revolver. I pull out a pin. <laughs> you know I mean? There you go. Everybody who's giving him death I, threats, I, just uh, wait it out. Uh, He'll do it himself. <laughs> I pull out that bullet. Like is that is that what is that what pitching? I TV kiss it know? once. <laughs> is that is that I what, slide it oh, into boy. the chamber. Is that what like pitching TV shows? Is that what all that stuff? Oh boy. What's he gonna? Have you seen the way I eat, Greg? I'm so dying. Before. Oh, stop it. I'll just be sitting there. Yeah. What What killed him? It was a Malabar. A Malabar or Malamar? Plural. Okay. Malamore. Malamore. Malamars. Um, no. <laughs> no, no, it's like there are times when I'm like with Steve Wacker and everything's running on schedule. <laughs> and, and I've been like... I've been working on the shit for so long and I haven't been going outside. I haven't been getting fresh air. I haven't been doing anything. My legs haven't moved in days. And I've been eating horribly. And he'll go to see me and I haven't like shaved or something. I'll come in for like lunch or something. And if the work's on schedule, he'll be like, I am seriously worried about you. I am, you have to do better. You can, come on, come on, pal. You gotta do better. And then when the work is late, it's where the hell is it? I'm like, oh, and I'll be like eating junk food. I'll be like, do whatever you have to do. Just get the damn stuff in. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you've seen the way I live. I'm dead. I'm dead in 20 years anyway. Oh, stop. Ten, ten. All right, so I'll be the, fine. Let's, let's. I just have to be sure to write my final Spider Man's ahead of time and put them in a drawer. <laughs> let us. All right, then let's presume. <laughs> You live past your final Spider-Man. <laughs> okay, sure. That you are not. You are not. Why not? <laughs> that you are not uh, buried. Oh my god! <laughs> it's like a nightmare that like this comes out, and then like the next day. <laughs> Greg Sheagle killed me. <laughs> live through 2012. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, that was good. All right. So let's 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 create uh, a hypothetical. Yeah, you've sure. Outlived your run on Spider-Man. Yeah, okay. Is that what pitching TV shows and, and that exploration outside of comics is about, or is it that's just side stuff? I always want to be working in comics. Sure. I love comics. Uh, I love the medium. I've had, I've had, you know, chances to do some other stuff. I, I've had chance to do far more lucrative things. If I wanted to, I could have stayed in advertising. Sure. Made a hell of a lot more money. 
Th- there's recent choices I could have made, which, which would have made me more money. Uh, I'm doing this because I love doing this. It's what I want to do. When you're working on your dream job, it's, that's it, man. I mean, think of all the people that are writing fanfic. Yeah. That would love to be sitting in this seat, you know, doing what exactly what I'm doing would probably in some kind of horrible scam be willing to pay Marvel for the privilege of doing what I'm doing. That This is sweet. This is very, very sweet. I do not. I do not take it for granted. And it really is. It's the job I've wanted since I was eight years old. This is what I exactly want to do. I am writing Spider-Man. The first Marvel retreat I'm at. Joe Casada. Joe was always wanting to do more extra behind the scenes stuff, more, you know, podcasts and videos. And he always wanted to do this more stuff. So we taped this segment for no one ever heard it, where he had us all the writers sitting around the table and he was just shooting questions at us. And one of the questions he asked was if you could work on any Marvel property besides what you're working on, what would you do? And Every person to a man, and this is when JMS was doing Spider-Man, every person to a man said, Spider-Man, 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 Spider-Man. It gets to JMS, and he goes, Spider-Man. And he goes, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. I'm the last guy on the table. And I go, Moon Knight. And I went, what? <laughs> what? No, because Moon Knight was my favorite in high school. And there was this part of my brain that was thinking, I'm never going to get a chance to write Spider-Man. That's not happening. Uh, here I am at a table, and Brubaker, Bendis, all these guys, they're like, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. No one is ever getting away from that seat. I'm like, how old am I? Uh, this is not happening. Everything that happened to put me on Spider-Man, I don't see any other way it could have happened. I am in the perfect storm scenario here. Time and space is bent to allow me to have this seat at this table and the privilege and honor of doing this exact job, which has always been my dream job. So I I do not take that lightly. So you say, what are you going to do when you're done? I'll do something else. You know, I've always wanted to write FF. You know, there's tons of Marvel characters that I have great affinity for, whether it's it's Cap or Iron Man or Hulk. You know, I I love all this stuff. Would I, I'd love to go back and do more She-Hulk. I'd love to go do more Avengers and this time be able to open up the toy chest and play with the cool toys. You know, there's a lot of stuff I would love to do. You, you know, Marvel's in my blood. And conversely, man, I'd kill the right Batman. You know, let me do Batman. I'll do Batman. It's like I, I, I look my five favorite fictional characters of all time. It's Spider-Man, Batman, Indiana Jones, Doctor Who, and Alice from Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. You, you, you get me Batman, I'm ecstatic. You know, or Superman, love to do Superman, love to do the Creeper, love to do Silver Age Doom Patrol. I have tons of other characters and things I love. Dead Man, you know. So Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, there's, there's a, a whole table open to me. And at the end of the day, I love doing comics, and I'd love to do creator-owned things. I'd love to do some of my own ideas. I'm not worried about not having something to do. And the fact that I've I've done Spider-Man, the fact that I'm doing a run of Amazing Spider-Man where it's one of Marvel's high, uh, best performing titles, I'm good, <laughs> you know? As long as I keep bringing the sales, as long as I keep bringing the readers, as long as I keep you guys happy, I'm, I'm good. Marvel will look after me because you, you're looking after me. And I'll get to keep doing it. The one thing I can never do is phone it in. You phone it in, that's when you stop. And I don't see that happening. 
because I'm very passionate about all this stuff. But who knows where I'll be, you know, a couple years from now, you know, who knows where I'll be if certain tragedies, because tragedies always befall us and they change your worldview and they change you as a person, you know, who knows what person I am 10 years from now. But at the same time, like right now, it's like, okay, when I was in London, I got to use some of my star power, which was awesome. I try not to use my power for, for personal gain and evil, but dude, I wanted to meet Matt Smith. And he was at the uh, con. Mm. So I had the guys, you know, get me over to Matt Smith. And I got to, you know, talk to him for a few minutes. Got to get my picture taken with him. Everyone's seen it on the internet. It's That picture was take two. <laughs> they made me, they brought me back and made me do the picture again. Because the photographer's like, he's closing his eyes. And I wasn't. I was smiling so much, my cheeks were pushing up my eyelids. I, I couldn't stop smiling. <laughs> I, you know, and I got to be there because I had the Spider-Man passport. Yeah. It opened up some crazy ass doors. And at the end of the day, that's all gravy. The The real reward is doing the book, is doing Spider-Man and telling the best Spider-Man stories I can and working with these incredibly talented people like Umberto Ramos and Giuseppe Camicoli and Stegman. It, working with these guys is the reward, too. You know, and there are these moments where Jesus Christ, there's, there, you'll see something in the 700 letter column. And when you see it, you'll know exactly what it is. And... Dear God, not only is it printed out and blown up on my fridge. Right now, that's probably what's going to be on my tombstone. Uh, something somebody else said. And you give me whatever superior Spider-Man death threat you want. I look at that quote in the morning, and I'm like, but you, but you, it all just bounces off because nothing's topping that. What am I going to do after it? I'll do something else. But it's it's this is good. Like when I was in London, I got to hang out a little bit with Chris Claremont. And he was saying to me, you know, watching me smile like an idiot and sign all these comics. And he came to me in his very Chris Claremontian way. Yeah. Said, uh, you know, like, enjoy these times while they're here. But, like, there is, like, a tinge of, like, they don't last forever. And I'm like, dude, I know. (laughs) These are the salad days. Look at me. Look at me. You know, like... I so know this. When I was working on the the Batman animated book, I, I loved working on it because I love Batman. And it was low enough on everyone's radar that no one cared. So there's very little interference. So you're telling like core Batman stories without anyone really riding you. Yeah. I walked around with the biggest freaking grin on my mouth and rainbows shot out of my ass everywhere I walked. I was like, I'm writing Batman. I was just like the happiest son of a bitch on the planet. But there was a point where I wasn't, where I was stressed because I was writing Batman. And one day I'm heading back into my uh, apartment. And I'm getting in the elevator and I'm loaded up with, with junk food, which is my, uh, my fuel. You know, everyone's got their vice whether it's smoking or drinking or whatever. And for me, it's, it's the sweets while I'm up late working and the carbs. And this guy walks into the elevator and he's in a suit and tie and he's got his, his briefcase and he's crumpled. He's a crumpled human being in a crumpled suit. And he just starts undoing the tie a little. And he looks at me and he lets out a sign. He's like, thank God it's over. Right. And I'm like, no, my day's just starting. I'm going to be doing an all nighter. I got to get this script done. My editor's going to kill me. And the door opens, and he walks in. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I've got to write a Batman story. And he looks at me as the doors start closing. He's like, you lucky? And then I didn't hear the rest. 
And it put it all in perspective. It's like, you know, there's work you have to do. There's work you get to do. And I've been blessed. I, you know, I've been, and I'm very appreciative that I, I get to do this really awesome job. What's your top junk food? Oh, the king of the heap. King of the heap is always going to be Reese's peanut butter cups, but I'm not allowed to have them. Uh, that's uh, when you're finished. They're for winners. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's certain things that seem to be go-tos when when the stuff isn't working, which is uh, you know the brain's just not clicking. Raspberry pop tarts and cherry Twizzlers, where the pull and peel. Sure. Those somehow end up in the shopping basket, and then there's time where I go on to healthy kicks, and um, where I will look at that bag of pull and peel, and I've taken like one out and pulled it. No, I am not doing this time. So I've actually taken it, shoved it in the bag, gone to the uh, trash mat, and just thrown it out. And then I'm like, well, that was like three bucks down the drain. <laughs> no, but seriously, it's like uh, yeah, yeah. if you ever get a chance to read it, whether you're a Doctor Who fan or not, like Mark Wade, I think it was Wade turned me on to it. Th- this book by Russell T. Davies, uh, who is the showrunner for the first like four years of Doctor Who, called Doctor Who The Writer's Tale. And it's just a journal that he kept with an interviewer chronicling his stint as the the showrunner and what it's like to be a writer. And you can read stuff like Stephen King's On Writing and it kind of feels a little too perfect, a little too, you know, erudite. But you read the Russell T. Davies book, and it's like, oh, my God, that's like what I go through. And Wade was saying, like, the same thing. Like, this is the closest thing I've read about writing. And there's one section where to get through his scripts, to get through, like, he's got to produce this thing tonight, he smokes like a chimney. He's just always smoking and smoking and smoking, goes through packs. And he does this thing we all do. Where he's telling the interviewer, no, this is going to be different. I, this is going to kill me. I have to turn over a new leaf. No more. I've switched over to Patch. You know, I'm going to write. This is going to be my first script I've written without a single cigarette. And the interview checks in with him later that night, like, you know, way late at night. And he catches him having ripped off the patch and going through every fucking jacket to try to find the one cigarette. <laughs> because, you you know... You, you you are who you are. At some point, everything that's really like reached you and affected you and changed you as a human being has happened, and you're set. And and you are this person, and you just have to be the best version of that person you can be. It would be wonderful, you know. People who see me yo-yo and wait, the you know, it would be wonderful to 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 make some major change in your life. I, I kind of know who I am. You know, there are things I'd like to do to make myself a better writer more than a healthier person, which is terrible. And and in those levels, you change and you learn things and you grow. But, you know, we, we are who we are. We are our nature. And I think most of our life is trying to figure out how to get that to work the right way. You know, there's only so many gears on your gear shift, you know, and how do you, how do you make that work? You know, there's only so many notes on the piano, but you get to tell a different song. You know, what's the best way to work with what you have? I mean, I'm never going to be a basketball player. What? It's not It's not going to happen, Greg. There's certain things I'm never going to be. I'm not, you know, that I'm just not, I don't have the assets you need to do that. And then there's other things where I do have the assets to and the ability to change and grow in different ways. So, yeah. So, it's like I look at, like, the way I'm handling the Internet now. It's a lot better than it was six months ago. I look at the way that I'm structuring some of my time, and it's better than it was but you know i'm 
probably leaving here tonight, and I'm I'm probably gonna get myself some damn raspberry pop tarts, son of a bitch. Well, I'll <laughs> let you get to it. Thank yeah. you, Dan, for all of your time. Sure. Yeah. So, so should I have said at the beginning, like, listen, everybody. If you're tuning in to hear us talk about current Spider-Man comics and what's happening in Spider-Man comics and what's going to happen in future Spider-Man comics, you shouldn't listen because we really aren't going to talk about that. Should I have put that up as a warning out of the gate? Should I have said stuff like, now we talk about Dan's life and it's a roller coaster ride. It's uh, highs and lows. and or, or was I all right to just... Cut to the chase and let the conversation begin. You can let me know. You can email me, stuffsaid at gmail.com. You can leave comments on the website, stuffsaidshow.com. You can tweet in my direction, at stuffsaidshow. You can also listen to the show, not only in iTunes or on the website, but through the Acme Wave Projector at acmewaveprojector.com. And if, if you want to hear more... There is that extended version of this exact conversation, about 30 extra minutes of us talking about stuff. You can hear about other places Dan went when he was in Europe, things of that nature. No, there's there's more stuff in there. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, tell people, rate it on iTunes. Hopefully, you'll give it five stars. Leave a comment. Apparently, there's a there's an algorithm of comments and ratings and new subscriptions that makes a show elevate in the ratings. So if you could do that, that'd be awesome. Otherwise, have a have a happy holiday because this is being released right before all, all the uh, the major ones. <laughs> I'll keep it nice and vague. This thing could come out anytime in any country. Well, not come out, but you can listen to it at any point, and you'll you'll feel you'll feel affiliated. Thanks for listening. That's about all the stuff I have left to say. See you next time. La, 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 la.